0: Well, good morning again. What a joy to be opening up God's Word with you. We are back in the book of Ruth this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn to the Old Testament book of Ruth, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. We will be in Ruth chapter 2. And we're actually going to dive into what is one of my favorite It is my favorite passage in the book of Ruth. It might be one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. So get ready and dig in. But before we get there, every day you and I face a choice. Will we choose to live life God's way? Or will we insist on our own independence and control, deciding for ourselves what is wise and what is best, what is right and what is wrong for us? This is a question that has been with humanity since the Garden of Eden. Standing before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man and woman had to decide if they would eat its fruits. At issue was not whether or not they would obey some arbitrary rule, but how they would pursue wisdom. That is what the tree represented. It represented wisdom. Yet let me say there is no indication that God intended to deny them wisdom or the knowledge of right and wrong. Adam and Eve were God's special creation. They were his image bearers, his partners in bringing life and order to the cosmos. But wisdom ought not come from a magical tree. Wisdom comes from walking with someone who is wise. True wisdom comes from a living relationship with God. It's discovered as we talk with him and trust him, as we wrestle and we learn, as we follow his word, his way, his spirit. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is awe and respect and humility before God. But our predecessors chose an alternate path, a magical tree whose fruit promised that they might become a rival center of wisdom apart from God. It's the childish response of which we are all guilty. I can do it myself. I want to do it my way. It is not a rejection of authority per se, but it is an insistence that it is all about me. Me. And if you know the story, you know what the result was. Humanity introduced disorder into God's good and beautiful world. And what's worse, we were cut off from the tree of life. We lost our access to God's abundant, unquenchable life. And Jesus says that the same choice stands before us still. We read this in Matthew 7. He says, enter by the narrow gate. This is what he beckons to us. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Will we choose to live life God's way or will we forge our own path? Will we trust Our instincts, our reason, the crowd around us to guide us in the way we should go. Yet you are here this morning because you are at least contemplating Jesus' narrow path with its promise of joy and flourishing and life forever in his presence. But the question is, is how do we walk that path? And here's the first key. The way forward will be murky, so stay in step with God. This is the same insight Jesus gives us in John 15. We read this, Remain in me, and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. This is my, to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. My command is this, love each other as I Have loved you. The way forward will be murky, so stay in step with God because true wisdom finds its source and center in God. So if we want to walk the path of life, we must learn to remain, to abide, to keep pace and in step with Jesus and what he's up to in the world. And when you choose to chase after Jesus, when you choose to make your home, In his presence, you learn something important, information that is vital for the journey into God's way of life. You learn three things. You know who you are, you know whose you are, and you discover what your purpose is. Who are you? You are a disciple. You are a branch of of the vine, you are someone with whom God delights to live and dwell with. Whose are you? You are his, you are Jesus' beloved. What's your purpose? To live a life with God, to love others, to bear much fruit, and so to bring God acclaim. That's how we walk the path. But what will walking this road require? Jesus also tells us, this time in the Gospel of Luke, and this is from the New Living Translation if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. And as we'll see in our story today, Walking this road of life with God will require extraordinary loyalty, it will require valor, and it will require a heroic commitment to God's way of doing things. Extraordinary loyalty. You should be hearing that Hebrew word chesed by now. right? Valor is this willingness to press forward into risk and a heroic commitment to God's way, choosing to live life God's way, no matter the cost, trusting that he and he alone knows the way of life. So this is a lot of preamble, and you might want to ask, how does Ruth's story fit into this? Well, I think Ruth illustrates for us what it means to live life God's way in the midst of the challenges and the ambiguities of real life. So as we dive into the climax of her story, we get to see her live this out. We get to ask, what does she have to teach us about living life God's way? So we're going to pick up the story in verse 19, but I want to remind you where we are and where we've been. Ruth is this poor immigrant widow who is trying to make a fresh start in a distant land. Since her husband's untimely death, Ruth has made a series of momentous decisions. She's left her parents and her homeland behind in Moab, and she's chosen to cling to her mother-in-law, Naomi, vowing to be by her side, her daughter always. Ruth has renounced her place among the pagan Moabites, and instead she's chosen to live among God's people in Israel, even if it means living on the margins of society. And finally, she's come to love and to trust and to devote herself to the God of Israel. In him, Ruth has discovered grace, the grace of God that extends to her that she experiences God's welcome and care and protection. You see, for Ruth, God has truly been a refuge and an ever-present help in her times of need. And last week, we read about through her combination of hard work and the generosity of a local landowner named Boaz, our widows, Ruth and Naomi, have been rescued from the brink of starvation at least for now. And we're going to pick up the story here in verse 19 as Ruth reports to her mother-in-law the name of the man who has done so much to bless them. And here's what we read, starting in verse 19. We'll pick up the end of the verse. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I have worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, whose chesed has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. I'll explain that in a second. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now Naomi can discern God's hand through Boaz's actions. God is using him to show his extraordinary loyalty And his gracious devotion, his his relentless love to these widows. What's more, God, Naomi can start to sense that God is orchestrating an even greater salvation through Boaz. She says he is one of our redeemers. Whether he realizes it or not at this point, he is what scripture calls a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer is a family member who has the means and the responsibility to help a member of the extended family, a member of the clan, recover from a loss. So, for example, say you were murdered or killed accidentally, morbid thought, I know, but your cousin Tony might be one of your family redeemers. He might seek justice on your behalf after your untimely demise. Or maybe your niece, Felicia, uh, is being sued. You might be called upon to assist her in her legal struggles because you are one of the kinsmen redeemers. Or if your son lost his home to foreclosure and found himself hounded by violent creditors, great-uncle Lorenzo might have to step in to buy back the land and pay off his debts. To be a redeemer means to bear the cost yourself so that a member of your clan might be able to continue living on their ancestral land. You see, when the Israelites first moved into the promised land, God gave each clan, each extended family, an inheritance, a tract of land that was their responsibility to keep and to keep in the family. It was a gift from the Lord and the redeemers help keep members of the family in their inheritance and they help maintain their status in the community of God's people. And Naomi says, Boaz is just that sort of a guy for us. He's a distant relative of her dead husband, Elimelech, and he has the power to fundamentally change the widow's situation. And this is good because things are about to get hard because if you noticed, the wheat and the barley harvest just ended. The crops have all been gathered in and it is hard to glean for your survival, which is what we saw Ruth doing last week, when all of the fields are empty. So with bated breath, the widows wait to see what God Or what Boaz will do. And guess what happens? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing happens. Verse chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi said to her daughter in law, or Naomi, her mother in law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that I may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative? with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing the barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say... I will do. Well, the season is ending. The barley has been gathered in. It's being winnowed, which means it's being threshed and winnowed. means you beat it with a stick and you throw it up into the air so the chaff blows away and the edible stuff falls down. It's one of the last moments of this harvest season. And Boaz is not acting fast enough for Naomi. So she thinks, well, maybe he just needs a little push Maybe Ruth and Naomi can jumpstart God's redemption. There's almost no good options left for them. If Ruth remarries an Israelite young man who thinks, you know, I'll marry a foreigner because she's beautiful or something, Naomi will be left out in the cold. That man, Ruth's new husband, would have no obligation, no legal obligation to carry or to care for her former mother-in-law Now the elderly Naomi could remarry or have someone redeem her land, the ancestral plot of land that was her husband's Elimelech that was lost to foreclosure. She can find someone to secure her financial future, it would set her up financially, but that person would have to would no obligation to Ruth. Ruth would be left to fend for herself. But Naomi thinks that Boaz could be the answer to both problems, yet he seems hesitant to act. Maybe he thinks Ruth is damaged goods. You know, she's young, she's formerly pagan, she's this penniless foreigner. She might not seem like a potential marriage partner for a respected pillar in the community. But Naomi, the mischievous Naomi, has thought, of a solution and she hatches a plan can we talk about naomi's plan it might not be a great plan it might be a bad plan she tells ruth to go get beautiful bathe put on perfume put on your best outfit the hebrew here implies that she's asking ruth to take off her mourning clothes that marked her as a widow and dress in a way that announces that she is eligible for marriage. So far, so good. You know, if Ruth's gorgeous, might as well not hide what God gave her. You know, she's trying to find a husband here. But then Naomi tells her to sneak to the threshing floor during the dark of night on the last day of harvest. The wheat and barley have been brought in, it's been threshed, it's been widowed, the edible grain has been piled up in these great mounds, and with the work finished in the ancient world, the men started to celebrate. And they started to celebrate hard. And there was parties at the threshing floor, and they would become these raucous affairs. And if you read the prophet Hosea, he says, On nights like these, the wine flows freely. And prostitutes materialize out of thin air to join in with the festivities. So in light of that context, what is Naomi's plan? Get beautiful, show up to a wild, drunken party, wait until Boaz is happy and sloshed, and then uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. I don't want to scandalize you, But to uncover the feet is a euphemism in Hebrew. In context, feet don't mean feet. In other places in the Old Testament, the phrase is translated to uncover one's nakedness. And I already told you, Naomi likes to ruffle feathers to make a little mischief. She's telling her beloved daughter-in-law to go find the well-sauced Boaz at the threshing floor in the dark of night, throw back the older man's cloak, and remember, there's no boxer briefs in the ancient world, and expose his nakedness to the brisk evening air. Then cuddle up next to him and see what happens. This is a bad plan. It is a dangerous plan. It is an unethical plan. I don't think I can endorse your plan, Naomi. At best, this is putting Ruth's physical safety and reputation on the line to sexually entrap an inebriated man. At worst, she is setting Ruth up for sexual assault. I guess she's thinking, well, Boaz might not seem to regard Ruth as an acceptable match, And if I can get him not thinking with his head, uh, maybe he'll change his mind. Or maybe he'll mistake her for a prostitute and sleep with her and a baby will result and bing, bang, boom, we've got a shotgun wedding. I'm not sure that Naomi is choosing to live life God's way. But Ruth agrees to submit to her mother-in-law's wishes. And we pick up in verse six. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said... Who are you? The darkness sets this tone of fear and uncertainty. To the the near eastern mind, midnight is this time of what they call ambivalent destiny. It's a moment of both terror and exhilaration when you don't quite know how things are going to go. It's a time of promise, but it's also a time of threat. Anything could happen. And as the cold air startles Boaz awake, I'm sure his mind starts racing with questions. How much did I drink? <laughs> Why am I exposed to the cold evening air? Whoa, there's a woman. What did I do? His foggy brain is trying to reconstruct what happened that evening, and he splutters out into the darkness. Who are you? It's a question of identity. Identity. Remember what I said, the way will be murky, so keep in step with God if you seek to walk with Him on that narrow road that leads to life. Know who you are, whose you are, and what your purpose is. And whatever Naomi's game was, Ruth has intentions of her own. Verse 9, Boaz said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ruth doesn't hide her identity. She doesn't pretend like something happened in an attempt to trick or trap him. She doesn't move to seduce him. She knows who she is, whose she is, and what her purpose is. Is. She says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Spread your wings over your servant. It's an interesting turn of phrase. She's echoing back Boaz's blessing in Ruth 2, verse 12. Boaz, it said, let the Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Ruth is inviting him to be God's wing of refuge for her and Naomi. It is within his power to grant Ruth that full reward from the Lord. And then spread your wings also has a second meaning. It can mean spread the corner of your garment over me. You could read it literally like hey share your, let me share your blanket it's cold outside tonight but there's something even more symbolic there a man spreading the corner of his garment over a woman was a symbol it was a ritual in the ancient world it marked something life changing it marked a man's intention to marry a woman It is the ancient equivalent of giving an engagement ring. It's this formal declaration of betrothal. So there in the darkness, get this, Ruth proposes marriage to Boaz. This is bold. This is crazy. It is culturally unheard of. No one would do this, but Ruth does. And I love Boaz's response in verse 10. And he said, may, the Lord be, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness, this last chesed, greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Boaz is amazed by Ruth. He praises this new kindness, this new Hesed that she's shown Naomi, himself, and God. He marvels at that extraordinary loyalty that she's shown to her mother in law. She's young. She can have a new husband, but if she found a new man on her own, someone of her own generation who could secure her future in this vulnerable world, it would have come at the expense of her mother-in-law. And she refuses. She instead will show extraordinary loyalty to Naomi, and she will keep their wagons hitched together to the bitter end. She also shows extraordinary loyalty to Boaz. She honors this man who's offered her so much generosity by refusing to compromise his honor and reputation. (laughs) Naomi hadn't cared if Boaz's standing in the community took a hit as long as she and Ruth were rescued. But Ruth respects Boaz too much to besmirch him. She was all honesty and integrity in her dealings with him. Finally, she showed loyalty to God by not straying from his moral will. The path forward might be murky, but she knew enough to know what was out of line. She was willing to take incredible risks, to launch out into the unknown, to defy cultural tradition, and to make a marriage proposal to a much older man but she would not compromise her character or misrepresent God's. She knew that seduction was out of bounds, that lying was out of bounds. Entrapment was out of bounds. Naomi's plan would have forced the issue. Ruth's plan left some things to chance, but it also left room for God to act. And what does Boaz say? Yes. He'll accept Ruth's proposal. He calls Ruth a worthy woman, a chayil woman. And he says, everyone knows it. Worthy here implies that Ruth is a person of strength and courage. It's usually a word reserved for battlefield commanders. But Boaz applies it to a penniless foreign widow. Why? Because he sees who she is, whose she is, and what her purpose is. She's fiercely devoted to family, to God, to others. She's heroic in her commitment to integrity and to doing things God's way, no matter the cost, no matter the risk. She trusts that God knows the way to life and she will walk that hard, narrow road all of her days. But, 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 there is a wrinkle. There's an increased bit of drama. Boaz shares some news that the widows had not previously known. He says in verse 12, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. You see, Boaz's hesitancy wasn't rooted in Ruth being a foreigner or in any concerns about her past. He was waiting for another family member with a closer connection to Naomi to exercise his prerogatives as the family member who could redeem them. He'd been waiting to see if this guy would act because he was first in line to buy back the lost land of Naomi's husband Elimelech to restore Ruth and Naomi's fortunes. Where he's been, the whole narrative, we don't know. But Boaz expresses his willingness to marry Ruth And to play that role of redeemer if the situation allows for it. He pledges to take up their cause as his own. And then our scene at the threshing floor ends this way. So Ruth lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another while it was still dark out. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. And she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? How would my plan go? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me for he said to me, You must, know, go, must not go back empty handed to your mother in law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And Ruth and Naomi must again wait with bated breath to see how Boaz and God will act. But Naomi, with a twinkle in her eye, tells Ruth not to worry. The man is hooked and God is moving. So take heart and have hope. All will be well. Every day, you and I will face a choice. Will we choose to live life God's way? Or will we insist on our own independence and control Insist on deciding for ourselves what is right and wrong, what is wise and best for us. Jesus says He knows the road that leads to life. In fact, He is the way. And He invites us to walk with Him. But how? The way forward will be murky So like Ruth, stay in step with God. Know who you are, whose you are, and what your purpose is. The road will be hard. It will be full of challenges and risk. It will require extraordinary loyalty and valor. It will test to see if you have a heroic commitment to living life God's way. But at the end of the day, it is the road that leads to life and flourishing, wholeness and healing and peace. It is the only way we discover joy and flourishing and life everlasting. Now Ruth could have gone with Naomi's plan, but it would have been messy Trust would have been broken. Reputations would have been tarnished. God's honor would have been besmirched. And things could have gone really, really, really wrong. Rape and violence. We know the ugliness that lives in our world. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. But God's way leads to hope and life, redemption and new beginnings. This is a crazy story and far more scandalous than we think it is when we read it in its original context. It sounds so tame in the English. But our application is I want you to be encouraged and to take courage by Ruth's example. May her story bolster your decision to live life God's way. May her valor and her heart spur you forward on your own journey as we follow Jesus together. Amen? Amen. Well, the worship team is going to come up, but let me pray. Lord, there are moments where it is dark It feels like that time of ambivalent destiny where we don't know what is in store. And in those moments of insecurity and doubt, we are so tempted to choose our own path. God, but you beckon us to have faith. Faith that you know what you're doing, faith that your word is true, faith that if we trust you and we do things your way, even though it seems risky or illogical illogical or painful or hard or deeply, deeply uncomfortable, you are trustworthy and you are present and you are moving. And it won't be our salvation of ourselves, but it will be your heavenly, divine salvation that is greater than anything we could ask, seek, or imagine, God. But man, do we lack courage, Father. We have a low tolerance for pain. So as we see this example of courage, of valor in Ruth, a foreign widow, may we find our own reserves of courage and hope and trust. Lord, You do the heavy lifting, but we still have to have the courage to trust You and live life Your way. I don't know, Lord, what decisions and turning points each and every one of us face, God, but You do. May we choose Your way, Your path, Your methods... At every turn, and may we experience your miraculous salvation, an outbreak of your healing and your restoration and life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.